missionary, like interns, people looking to go overseas at some point, you should totally try to connect with Tyler and Lauren while they're here. I think they're just some of our best at learning how to live and flourish in another culture, even when it's super different from the one that maybe you grew up in. So uh, we'll have some time at the end of our service. We're going to end a bit early, which I'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, if you have any interest in overseas work, you should definitely connect with Tyler and Lauren while, uh, while they're here. So, all right, Philippians chapter 1. Um, we're going to start in the last little bit of verse 18. So let me read this for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Philippians chapter 1, the last bit of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is Cain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. So we say, thanks be to God. So for the past two weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is written from a prison cell to encourage a young church in unity, getting along together, and in joy. And in this section of the letter in particular, you get a sense for Paul's unshakable confidence as a Christian, his steadfast joy, regardless of his life situation. Swagger is maybe too strong of a word, but like maybe you'll see what I mean. He almost, you know, can come across as like an incurable optimist here. And when Ashley and I first started dating, we found out that one of us was a bit more of an optimist and the other one was a bit more of a realist in her words, right? Which is, you know, what pessimists always say they are is a realist, right? And so I think my first Christmas gift to her when we were dating was this big book of positive quotations. Um, and at times, you know, I'm sure an incurable optimist can be pretty annoying. And I'm sure I was, slash am. Uh, you know, people saying like, just, you know, look on the bright side. It's going to turn out. This is all going to work out just fine. And it's like, okay, how do you know that? Do you have like reasons for thinking that? And usually not, you know, and optimists just kind of feel like it's going to be fine. It's going to work out. But Paul shows us in this passage that Christians really do have a reason to always be steadfast in their joy in the midst of any circumstance. He's going to show us first the certainty of joy that you really can have it. Second, the reason for joy, 
why you can have it. And then third, the outcome of joy. How do you live or what happens in somebody's life if they are able to grab hold of the steadfast joy that you can have as a Christian? So the certainty of joy, the reason for joy, and then the outcome of joy. Uh, so first, the certainty of joy. Look at Paul's language here, like how certain he sounds about how all this is gonna work out. Uh, back to verse 18 at the beginning. He says, yes, and I will keep on rejoicing for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope, which means confidence that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So remember, Paul is in jail while he's writing this, awaiting the outcome of a trial for his missionary efforts, which could, could go either way. Uh, and he doesn't seem too phased by this, like he's not angsty about it. He seems ready to walk to the gallows with his head held high, eyes straight ahead and fire in his heart. It's like, man, I did not know that attitude was even kind of like possible. <laughs> you know, do you know anybody who lives this way? Who would even think that having and living in the craziest of circumstances with this kind of settled assurance, certainty, confidence, joy, is this even a real thing? Is this a real way of living? You know, perhaps like me, you read the section of Paul's letter and you hear his attitude, his level of confidence and trust in God and his joy, and it just seems so far removed from your daily experience as a Christian. And maybe it would be helpful for you to know that this was not always Paul's experience either. It's not like he's always perfectly tranquil or chipper throughout every moment of his life leading up to this. He writes in other places in the New Testament of feeling overwhelmed, of despair, feeling tormented or, or anxious. Paul knew what it was to wrestle with God in prayer and to face terrible adversity in his life. But somewhere along the way, and Paul's gonna say this later in the letter in chapter four, verse 12, that he had learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. He says, I know how to be brought high and I know how to be brought low. But you see, it, he did have to learn it. <laughs> it took time, it took suffering, it took prayer, it took trial and error, but Paul learned. And this takes time. It's not like you can just say, hey, great news, I listened to a sermon today on having unshakable confidence and happiness as a Christian, and now I am good to go. You know? Having this level of settled joy that Paul displays is not immediate in the life of a Christian. But the main thing that I want you to see is that it's not impossible either. That the pursuit of joy is a struggle, but it's not without help and without reasons. And Paul has some help here. He mentions in verse 19 that his confidence and peace was connected to the prayers of the church on his behalf and the help of the spirit of Jesus. Of Jesus. Paul has confidence and joy because he believes the Philippian church will actually be praying for him and that through their prayers, God will answer them and that he will be delivered, which doesn't necessarily mean he thinks he'll get out of jail. It just means he wants them to pray that he will honor Christ up to the moment of his death with how he conducts himself in this trial, how he testifies in court, 
and how he accepts the sentence given him, life or death. So Paul's confidence in this moment is wrapped up in the prayers of the church. So if you are struggling to find any sense of joy, peace, settledness, confidence as a Christian, you should ask for the prayers of the church. You should share with people who know you, your small group or your leaders, or when we gather for prayer on Sunday evenings, you should share, I need your prayers. God acts and Paul expects that God will act in response to those prayers. This is a repeat lesson for us from the book of Daniel chapter nine, where Daniel prays and God does amazing things. Paul expects that that will happen. Ask for the prayers of the church. And for the rest of us, church, can others count on you for your prayers when they need it? If you see a church member post something on our Facebook group or you see an email sent out through our email prayer chain or when our missionaries update us on their lives like Tyler did this morning and when we get prayer requests for all our missionaries, which we're gonna get at intermissions in just a couple of weeks or when we gather together for prayer about once a month on Sunday nights, can the rest of the church count on you for your prayers? God acts in response to them and he advances his work through the prayers of our church. Can you say that people can count on you? That they can have Paul's type of attitude? They're like, yeah, I can rejoice because I know that your prayers will work this out for my deliverance. The prayers of the church are one of the things that helps Paul attach all the beautiful things he knows to be true about God to his lived daily experience. So Christians have every reason to be joyful people, but it does take time. It takes prayer, the direct help of God's own spirit, and sometimes suffering to help us grasp and ingest these reasons for joy. It's not immediate, but it's not impossible. There is joy available and certain for those who know Jesus. And Paul's gonna now explain why. He's gonna say his reason for joy in these next verses, starting with the very famous verse 21. He's gonna say his reason for joy. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So if you had to sum up why Paul would say that he has confidence and joy, I would say it's because he has purpose. He says, for me to live is Christ. Paul can live with confidence because he lives with significance. To live is Christ. If you had to complete Paul's sentence, Honestly, how would you complete it? What makes life, life for you? What makes life worth living to you? What enables you to get out of the bed in the morning besides coffee? You know, what keeps you going? Like really, how would you finish Paul's sentence if you're honest with yourself? For me to live is... Uh, one of my favorite hunting shows begins with this phrase, the uh, host of the show, he's like, I live to hunt and I hunt to live. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. 
So what about you? What do you live to do? And what do you do to really live? Lots of options, right? I live to relax. I live really to succeed in my career, to enjoy my family. I live to make a name for myself, to make my mark. I live to enjoy the weekend, man. I live to have fun. Not that all those things are bad, far from it. But if any of those is what makes life life for you, then you'll never be able to complete the second part of Paul's sentence where you say death is gain. Because if those things are your life, then death will only be a loss. Weekends, vacations, loved ones, job status, relationships. And in our society, we've become so good at professionalizing death, sending it away to nursing homes, hospitals, funeral homes, keeping it at a distance. And many of us live here in the Raleigh area farther away from uh, much of our elderly extended family members. So we don't deal with death on a regular basis. So I'm not sure we have a healthy view of death as this inevitable, soon-to-be-faced reality for all of us. I think I've mentioned before that my grandparents uh, started running a funeral business when I was a teenager. And I would often go to help them, you know, around the business with different things and at funerals. So but by the time that I graduated high school, I think I had been to more funerals than most people will go to in their whole lives. And that was pretty sobering for me as a 13, 14-year-old teenager to be at funeral after funeral. You see, death is really abstract for us until it comes up close. And then it's the great interrupter, the great thief, the great enemy that breaks our hearts and snatches away those we love. But Paul was able to adopt a healthy attitude towards his own death, towards a very not abstract possibility of death, right? Because he knew that his purpose would outlast the grave. And that was Christ. His great love was not found only in this life, but beyond it. And so he writes of this yearning to be with Jesus in a face-to-face way that's not possible in this life. I wonder if you can relate to him. If you've ever felt like a deep longing to be with God, such that you could consider death as gain, not as loss. And yet, this is not like some sort of death wish for Paul. He's not debating between actual choices here, but he does get caught up in a little game of would you rather. You know, the game where you choose between like two uh, hypothetical, usually bad for whatever reason, options in the game. Like, would you rather always hit a red light for the rest of your life or always get slow internet after the sun goes down? You know, it's like, oh, that's actually, you know, I'm gonna have to go home and think about that. Let me write that down, yeah. Um, Except Paul's hypothetical is between two good things. He's ready and even eager to go be with Christ if he receives the executioner's acts. But this is not just an escape from earthly suffering for Paul. Because he's ready to die, he's also ready to live. Paul has something worth dying for and therefore worth living for too. He sees either of his potential future outcomes as win-win scenarios. There's not a lot, of, a lot of people that I think really have that. You know, some people see life as a win, but death will be a loss. Other people look at life with all of its tragedy and pain and evil, and to them, perhaps life is a loss. And some sort of escape seems like a win, but it's not really a win. It's just getting out of all the bad stuff here. 
But Paul has something that brings him purpose both in this life and hope beyond the grave. For him, it's a win-win scenario. He has a healthy attitude towards life and a healthy attitude towards death. I mean, think about how he views his life. Verses 24 and 25, I'll paraphrase. He says, to keep on living here, you know, d- despite all these hardships and setbacks, is worth it because it's not about me. It's about knowing Christ and life is about serving you. And so he's convinced that he's gonna stick around for a little while for their progress and joy in the faith so that they would glory in. There's another way of saying cherish, value, love Christ more because of Paul's life and his work. He says, this is why I'm here, for the progress and joy of others in their relationship with Christ. It gives him purpose. And so he has joy. It's another way of saying what the Bible often calls making disciples, helping one another along in their walk and faith with God. It's what Paul is up to when he writes this letter. He's making disciples. He's trying to press them forward in their progress and joy in the faith. It's a super practical example of a creative way that you can do that too. You could write a letter to someone who you know, maybe who is discouraged, who's downcast, or just you don't know why you feel like you should write them a letter, but you should. I got a letter earlier this summer from um, a brother here at our church, handwritten letter, did not expect it at all. And God used that letter from my Christian brother at a time when I really needed some encouragement. It pressed me forward in my progress and joy in the faith. So why is Paul able to maintain his joy in the midst of a trial? Because in Christ, he has a person who will never leave and a purpose that will not waver. He has unshakable confidence because he has a singular purpose, Jesus Christ. He has a meaning in life that suffering, disappointment, and even death cannot snatch from him. As hard as it is, he still has a reason to live. Paul's key question and motivating concern in life is always, what will advance the message of Jesus best? Because Jesus Christ is Paul's central organizing principle. It's his reason for living, his center of gravity. And because of that, he is now bulletproof. And if you want to a joy like Paul's, you need a good reason like Paul. And if you have Jesus Christ, the very son of God who lived his life for you and died his death so that he could gain you, then you can learn to say on your best and worst days for me to live is Christ. And so to die is gain. That's the reason for his joy. And now let's look at the outcome of his joy. Last, the outcome of his joy. Verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life, or one last thing, in the meantime, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So for Paul, the outworking, or if you have a settled joy in Jesus, how that plays out in your life means living in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
other translations, and I like this even better, better, say living as worthy citizens of the gospel, living in such a way that is worthy of the message of God's unfathomable grace towards in Jesus, that the way you live honors that message. It's in sync with it. It doesn't detract from it or compete with it. And Paul has two specific ways that he wants to see this work out in the church at Philippi. One is that they would have unity in the church. And second is that they would have courage in their suffering. So one, unity, that they would get along. And then second, that they would have courage in their suffering. So first, unity. Paul says, you know, whether I get to come visit you or I only hear about you, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the message of Jesus. And that language of striving side by side is military language, like how a soldier would be in lockstep formation with his um, comrade beside him. He he uses that to describe the type of cooperation and synchronization that the church ought to have in its missionary efforts. Now, I'm not like a military guy. I don't know anything about military tactics. That's the other youth minister guy, Robert. He's in the army. But I'm pretty sure that an army busy fighting with itself is not very effective. And sadly, over the past year plus, I'm afraid that the church and many in the church have largely been putting more effort into striving against one another than striving side by side with one another for the sake of the message of Jesus. For Paul, the advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church matter more than anything else. This mattered to him more than his safety And this mattered to him more than his freedom. The advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church matters more than our safety. And yes, it matters more than our freedoms. You know, with the unfortunate resurgence of the Delta variant, uh, we have yet another opportunity to figure out how to fight for the unity of the church and the advancement of the gospel rather than fighting one another. So let's do this with hearts full of like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Does this mean that we will always agree? Probably not. But perhaps if we didn't do so well at listening to one another, understanding one another, and finding ways to put others' needs above our own, we can start now. The question for us is not ever what is best for me, but what will best display the character and the message of Jesus to a watching world. So may God help us in this in the days ahead. But then secondly, Paul's steady joy in Jesus leads him to courage in the midst of suffering. After he says that, you know, I want to know that you're striving together with one mind for gospel advancement, he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. For you know that just as it is our privilege to trust in Jesus, it's also our privilege to suffer for him. This is a good reminder for us as we both think about our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who do suffer for the sake of Christ, and as our culture continues to shift 
uh, to where Christianity is no longer the dominant perspective in our country. You know, it can kind of be deceiving in Wake Forest when we have a seminary so close. But if you spend more time in downtown Raleigh or spend more time with college or high school students, you'll know that Christianity will soon, if not already, no longer be the prevailing view of life in our culture. But what I'm so struck by here and trying to get my head around still is how Paul encourages the Philippians to see their suffering for the sake of Christ as just as much of a privilege as it is to trust in him. And we need to be tutored in this by our brothers and sisters around the globe who have faced decades, even centuries of persecution. And the verses that we've looked at today have become precious and fortified countless believers as they face devastating consequences for their faith in Christ. In the 1970s, during the horrific genocidal reign of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, essentially anyone of minority status was executed, and that began with church leaders. And there was a church leader named Chiang Chirik who sent a final letter to his friends that said simply, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please pray that this will be worked out in my life and in my death. In Iran in 1984, there was a man named Mehdi Dibaj who was arrested for converting to Christ from Islam. He was in prison for 10 years waiting for his trial to come to court. And before he went to trial, he wrote a statement of defense. And the last paragraph said this, Jesus Christ is my savior and he is the son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. And I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospels. And I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death, a better opportunity to be with him. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Now, amazingly, Mehdi was released after intense pressure from foreign governments, but then he was found dead a few months later in a park in Tehran, the third Christian killed mysteriously after their release from prison. You know, I remember the first time I met another Christian who had been beaten for his faith in Christ. He was a pastor in North India, and I'll just call him Manny. And Manny and I went on a long car ride together, and I was just asking him a lot of questions, you know, about his, about his life and about his work. And I asked him if he had ever gotten into trouble. You know, uh, it's kind of against the law to do some of the things that he was doing in, in that area, going around and talking about Jesus. And he said, yeah, I mean, that kind of thing happens a lot around here. And I said, well, has anything really bad ever happened to you? And he was kind of reluctant to share but he told me about a time that he and a friend went into a village, went into a town, and started up a conversation with some folks in the local market, asking if they had ever heard anything about the love of God for them in Jesus Christ and how God had made them and loved them and rescued them from their sin. And as they talked, uh, the people that they were talking to took terrible offense to this. They called a crowd together and beat them both in the middle of the town, dragged them to the edge of town, threw them out and told them never to come back. And so I asked Manny, okay, so what did you do next? And he said, we prayed and we thanked God that he counted us worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. And I'm just like, you know, as an American, we feel outrage. 
But as a Christian, Manny felt gratitude. My friend Manny, for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. And so his response to suffering was not one of hate or outrage, but gratitude. He counted it a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so Paul sets a steady example for this young church and for us. He says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You need to see examples of believers who suffer faithfully for knowing Christ. We need to be tutored by this, by our brothers and sisters around the world and by Paul. And why it has to be this way, why it is granted to us to suffer for his sake, I do not fully understand. But so it was for Paul. So it is for countless of our brothers and sisters around the globe. And so it was for God's own son. He too knows what it is to suffer, to suffer for us and for our sin. And so when he calls us to suffer for him and for his sake, he knows what it is he's calling us to. It is not a light thing for him. But if he is the one that makes life worth living and death worth dying, then we can have joy in it all. So by our prayers and by the help of the spirit of Jesus, may God teach North Wake Church to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, I'll close with a portion of an ancient prayer written by St. Patrick. And maybe this prayer would be helpful for you. Um, I think it's gonna be helpful for me. I'm gonna begin to use it to help me faithfully pray each day that Christ would be my life, the center, the foundation of it all. St. Patrick wrote this. He said, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Let's pray. So Lord, by our prayers even now this morning and by the help of your spirit, would you teach us to say with Paul that for us to live is you, Christ. And so to die is to gain because it's to gain you. Would you teach us even today uh, what it means to bring that into our daily life? That to live would not be so many of the other things that we could fill in the blank with, but it is to live for you. Give us mercy in this, give us help. Make us people who pray for others who are in greater suffering than we for the name of Christ. May they be able to count on our prayers so that even their suffering will turn out for their deliverance. And we pray all this through the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, well, we're gonna wrap up a little bit differently today because we have uh, some stuff going on. But before we dismiss, let me just say that we have some pastors and leaders that are always willing to pray with you. We hang around here at the end of the service. And you know, if you're like, yeah, I definitely am struggling to live with any sort of settled confidence or joy or certainty in my life, uh, we'd love to pray with you and talk with you. Ask for the prayers of the church. We are, we are here to help. And... Um, 
We're gonna dismiss in just a moment for a ministry fair. And this is where if you're not already, if you're not already meaningfully involved in some ministries of our church, then we have some opportunities for you to catalyze the progress and joy of others' faith. This is, you can serve on Sunday mornings to kind of make everything happen, happen, that happens. Uh, So whether that's serving in our children's ministry or welcoming folks in hospitality or helping do some of the things that make this service happen, uh, we need your help. And so we do have some ways where on Sunday morning, you can look out for the progress and joy of one another's faith. So we're gonna dismiss in just a moment where you're gonna have some time where if you have questions about different ministries, there'll be some tents out there and leaders at those tents who can answer your questions and get you signed up to, to serve in, in some way. And um, you know, if you're already signed up to serve somewhere or you know exactly how you wanna serve and you go out there and get signed up, take advantage of the bit of extra time that we have to talk with each other about serious things. You could say, hey, what did God teach you today as we looked at his word? What do you need to hear? What do you need to take away? Uh, use this opportunity to, to get to know someone maybe that you've not met before. Uh, so if you have a bit of time, uh, don't just run away too quick. Uh, use, use it well. And then um, one last thing in regards to post-service, and it's cool that I can say this because Larry's not in here. He's over teaching in the you know, adult class across the way, but we are celebrating his 30 years of pastoral service to our church, uh, which in pastor years is like 5,000 years. So that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. And it says, it says a lot about Larry. Uh, it says probably even more about his wife, Stephanie. Um, and it says a lot about this church that you guys have loved and supported him and his family through the years. So uh, there's a basket out in the lobby if you wanna write a note or leave a note or drop a gift card in there. I think it'll be out there for a couple of weeks. So just remember that and let's give thanks for, um, for a wonderful pastor who has kindly shepherded us and led us for 30 years, which in my lifetime seems like a pretty long time. So um, that's awesome. So um, yeah, whenever we dismiss, you can head out to the courtyard and begin to to check out the ministry stuff, ministry fair stuff there. So uh, let's stand. Let me dismiss us all with a benediction from Philippians chapter three, and then we'll go. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Amen. You're dismissed.